This is Guns and Butter. is a return to feudalism. Uh, it used to be that uh, nations would have to militarily conquer a country in order to grab the land and uh, impose taxes and tribute on them. And now this is done not militarily anymore. This is done financially. And uh, the financial aggression has replaced the military aggression, but the effect is just as uh, devastating. It's just as devastating for the population, and uh, the solution is for these countries to realize that there is a new war that's taking place. People don't even realize that it's a financial war, because somehow they believe that they can get richer by going into debt. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Europe's financial class war against labor, industry, and government. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, and America's Protectionist Takeoff. Dr. Hudson has written many articles on the current global financial crisis. A few of his most recent articles that we discuss today are Drop Dead Economics, The Financial Crisis in Greece and the European Union, Latvia's Cruel Neoliberal Experiment, and The Counter-Enlightenment, Its Economic Program and the Classical Alternative. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. The price of the euro has dropped considerably. To what do you attribute this drop? Is it uh, mere financial speculation, or is there something more fundamental at work? Well, of course, there's financial speculation, or it wouldn't be dropping, but there's a realization uh, that Europe is being run in a very incompetent manner. Uh, for the last uh, 30 years or so, people thought of Europe as being a political union, uh, and that it was aimed at bringing countries together so they'd never go to war again, as they have for the last thousand years. Uh, instead, it turns out that Europe is being run by the European Central Bank, uh, which is unelected, uh, which is independent. And it's the intention of the central bank and the bankers to bankrupt Europe, to deliberately uh, slash living standards by about one-third, to act on the premise that in order to bail out the banks for loans that have gone bad, uh, pensions have to be reduced drastically. Social security has to be reduced or abolished. Social spending has to be cut back. Public health has to be cut back. Hospitals have to be closed down. The class war is uh, being fought today uh, in an orchestrated way, more seriously than at any time in the last century. And it's a war for really what the future of Europe will be. Will it be a dominance by the rentier interests, by the banks and the real estate interests, and by wealth, 
against labor to really uh, force Europe into debt peonage. Uh, labor in Europe is not as passive as it is in the United States, and they're saying, uh, we're not going to let you uh, reduce our living standards and uh, roll back the clock uh, two or three centuries back to medieval times. This is really a medieval-type uh, schedule. Uh, let me explain what the situation is and why it's so bad. Uh, European central banking is based on something called the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, this treaty says that central banks cannot do what central banks were founded to do. They can't finance government deficits. Uh, all they can do is act as sort of currency boards, uh, stabilizing the currency, uh, which means making sure that the foreign investors get paid. Uh, in America, in England, uh, in other countries, central banks were founded to finance uh, the government deficits, and the governments ran deficits in recessions for the good Keynesian reason of uh, increasing demand, of stabilizing the economy, and increasing employment. Uh, the desire of Europe, and you see it most of all in Latvia, is despite the depression to run a budget surplus, to shrink the economy more, to lower wages by 30%, uh, which they've already fallen in Latvia, hopefully by 50%, to uh, reduce living standards, to reduce uh, marriage rates, reduce fertility rates, and essentially abolish the whole social democratic uh, program that people thought uh, Europe was being founded on when the European community was formed in 1957. Well, could you then explain how the European Central Bank, the ECB, is different from our Federal Reserve? Our Federal Reserve can create deposits simply by uh, crediting the bank account of uh, either a bank or the private sector or the government. Uh, the European Central Banks uh, just act uh, passively. Uh, they say that uh, uh, governments cannot borrow freely from the central bank, they have to pay interest to commercial banks. The European Central Bank is run as the lobbying organization for the large banking interests. Now, the same is true here, of course, of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve is the lobbying organization of the uh, commercial banks as opposed to the Treasury. Uh, but in Europe, they've gained uh, much more power to strangle the political uh, government and to override whatever tax policies and spending policies uh, domestic governments can have. Uh, what you're having today is a a plan that was planned just as carefully as uh, the Brinks robbery or the Great Train robbery. Uh, it's an orchestrated attempt to convince populations uh, that they can't afford Social Security, that they can't afford a deficit, that governments have to pay so much to the bankers, have to pay so much more to the richest 1% of the population that the bottom 90% of the population has to starve, has to stop having children, and preferably emigrate. Well, then, but isn't the important point, and you've mentioned this, that the European Union is, or was, first a political organization, and only secondly, an economic union? No, it's not. Uh, the European Union has never become a political organization. 
a political organization would require a Congress, and uh, there would have to be Europeans electing a common parliament that would make the rules, and uh, that's not the case. Uh, each nation is individual. Europe is only a financial institution run by the banks, uh, directly antagonistic to industry, antagonistic to labor, with uh, the policy of reducing living standards. Now, what this does is throw into question what every student in college is told in political theory and economic theory. The underlying textbook theory is that individuals act in their own interest and that under a democracy, voters are going to elect a government that will represent their interests, uh, which are supposed to be rising living standards, and that nations elect in their own self-interest. This isn't happening because the European Central Bank is independent from the political process. So voters don't have any uh, ability to uh, uh, act, <laughs> uh, to influence its policies. All they have uh, the ability to do is refuse uh, to join Europe. And it now looks as if European expansion is uh, coming to an end abruptly, because who on earth would want to uh, belong to a continent whose policy is to lower living standards? It's inconceivable to me that in a democracy uh, you could actually elect a government that says, we're going to reduce your living standards by 50%. We're going to close the hospitals, we're going to stop medical care, and we're going to throw the old people out in the street, just like the post-Soviet economies did in 1991 after they were given independence and uh, there was a whole grab of uh, property and uh, the elderly were starving in the street. Well, I guess what I meant by that question is, wasn't the motive, though, for forming the European Union a political one to avoid uh, the wars that have torn Europe apart in the past? Uh, you're referring to the EEC, the European Economic Community, formed in 1957. At that time, it was formed largely by socialists. At that time, uh, Europe uh, was largely left-wing and had uh, progressive taxation. What there's been since about 1980 is a very sharp move to the right, further to the right, way against what used to be called way off the right-wing edge of the spectrum. And uh, instead of being a political union, uh, it's a financial uh, union, a banking union, except to the point where the banks can replace the government, uh, take over the function, and uh, become the planning organs of society. So uh, whereas people in 1957 thought that government spending, government investment, uh, and public enterprise and planning was going to lead economies, now uh, the public planning and public investment has been disabled, and the banks are doing the planning. They're selling off the public sector. Uh, they're telling Greece, uh, sell off uh, your property, uh, sell off the Parthenon, sell off the Pantheon. Uh, you know, sell off everything that you have in order to uh, borrow the money to pay the foreign banks uh, that have lent you the money to finance your uh, government deficit that your central bank could have done for nothing and to lend you the money so that you will not have to tax the rich people. Uh, they're telling Greece only tax the poor. Do not tax the rich. Do not tax property. Do not tax finance. Only tax labor uh, until your labor force shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and leaves. Well, is there any drive in Europe to make the union more than an economic one, but to bring it together politically as well? 
Yes, the fascists are seeking that. The only people wanting to make a union are the ultra-right wing that say we want it to be a political union so that uh, there's no more democracy, that there is an oligarchy. The attempt to make Europe political today is oligarchic and actually wants to roll back the uh, time clock to feudalism. In that sense, uh, it does seek to be a political union, but it is almost entirely evil. Well, there have been dire predictions of the Eurozone coming apart at the seams and the death of the Euro. How seriously do you take these predictions? Uh, If the strikers uh, in uh, Greece, Portugal, Spain... Uh, France uh, succeed, uh, it will come apart, and it ought to come apart. Uh, Europe has been turned into a financial monstrosity, uh, an anti-democratic, anti-labor monstrosity. This is why uh, England has decided uh, so long not to become a member of it. It's why uh, other countries have voted not to join the euro. It's why Iceland uh, got fed up uh, with uh, the European Central Bank and the EU uh, trying to pressure Uh, It would be the best thing in the world for uh, Europe not to become a political union under right-wing direction. That's why even Donald Rumsfeld here in the Defense Department keeps referring so contemptuously to old Europe. Uh, It is the old Europe. These are the uh, post-feudal interests, the financial interests, the property owners, that people thought uh, they had all uh, managed to check in the 19th century. The whole idea of uh, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, of the progressive era reformers, the social democratic parties and the labor parties, was to run the economy in order to raise living standards and to run the financial system and the banks in order to serve the economy. Instead, uh, the rentier interests have fought back and the economy is supposed to be run for the banks and the wealthy layer uh, on top of the pyramid, which uh, one of the German uh, historians said float like globules of fat on the broth of uh, the economy. Right. Now, you just mentioned Great Britain and uh, the reason why they didn't want to join the Eurozone, but isn't Great Britain in worse economic shape than the Eurozone? It is because since Margaret Thatcher, it's become almost purely uh, financialized. Uh, It's been run by the financial interests, and uh, she didn't seem to realize uh, that her privatization system was essentially uh, creating monopolies that would become vehicles to generate interest and financial fees uh, for the city of London, which is their financial district. But that's what's happened. Uh, England has deindustrialized. Uh, there's widespread unemployment there. Uh, outside of London, uh, property prices are declining and uh, mortgages are going bad. And the only property that's maintaining uh, its value is in central London itself, which is owned mainly by uh, the wealthy uh, without mortgages. Right. Well, do you think, well, I mean, if Great Britain had joined the Eurozone, it would actually be dragging the Eurozone down even farther, wouldn't it? Well, they'd be dragging each other down. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Europe's financial class war against labor, industry, and government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Is there a concerted Anglo-American financial media attack on the Eurozone in general? No, there's an attack on Social Security and social spending. Uh, In the United States, the Peterson Institute, for instance, 
uh, in conjunction with the Obama administration, is urging uh, drastic rollbacks in Social Security. Uh, Obama has appointed a commission to look into the budget uh, future and appointed Alan Simpson of Wyoming and other right-wingers uh, to come out with a recommendation much like the Greenspan Commission in 1982, saying uh, if the government's going to continue being run for the banks, if we're going to continue the bailouts we're giving for the banks, uh, we're going to have to cut Social Security, we're going to have to cut Medicare, uh, we're going to have to drastically reduce American wage levels uh, in order to pay the banks more, which are his constituency. So. Uh, the fight isn't to break up Europe, it's to break the working class, to break the unions, to lower living standards, to lower wage levels, and to put the class war more viciously back in business than anyone dreamed in the 19th century. Well, is it also an attack on the euro? Not as such. The attack on the euro is incidental. Uh, the attack on the euro is sort of a staged uh, uh, squeeze. Uh, it's not really an attack on the euro so much as saying we're going to starve the uh, government's uh, budget deficit. We're not going to fund the government, and because the Maastricht Treaty prevents the central bank from funding uh, government deficits, you're going to have to cut back social spending uh, because otherwise you're not going to get the money because you countries have already agreed to give up your national sovereignty and to turn it over to the European Central Bank that says uh, if the commercial banks won't lend you the money, to uh, fund your deficits, then you're just going to have to cut spending. And uh, they're telling Europe to start with uh, Social Security, pensions, uh, health care, uh, and other social spending. Now, the last time I checked, the euro was down to 1.19 to the yep, dollar. It's that's down from 160. That's, that's a, a, a huge drop. Do you think it's going to drop further? Uh, it's Probably it will. There's no way of seeing where it will go. And the attempt is to squeeze, uh, to squeeze it until the governments uh, give up uh, all hope of democracy, as uh, the socialist uh, government in Greece has already agreed to uh, slash living standards. Uh, the big losers in this, of course, are the Chinese. They hold more euros than almost every, every other government put together. Uh, they've taken a huge loss uh, from trying to diversify away from the dollar. And uh, the moral is that there's no uh, paper currency in the world uh, that's safe anymore. Uh, the dollars uh, was shaky a year ago. The euro's shaking now. Sterling's shaking now. Uh, there's no real point in any country running a balance of payment surplus if all they get is currency that's uh, falling in price against every other currency. Now, you've already alluded to this generally, but specifically, what is your estimation of the European Central Bank and the IMF bailout of Greece? Do you think that this bailout was good for Greece? And what It wasn't a bailout of Greece at all. Yeah, you shouldn't use their uh, propaganda. It was a bailout of the German banks that have lent to Greece. Greece didn't get a penny of money. The money all went to the foreign creditors of Greece, uh, and speculators were able to clean up by, first of all, uh, crying havoc and saying that Greece suddenly was going to default and then uh, pushing way up uh, uh, the costs of insuring Greek debt and then uh, getting a free ride when the IMF uh, bailout money to the banks uh, came in. So Greece's uh, economy has been sacrificed to pay the foreign banks that have been financing the uh, the uh, 
Greek government deficit. The Greek government should have said, well, first of all, uh, since it's a German bank, give us back the gold that you Nazis stole during World War II. Uh, and secondly, we have no intention of repaying you uh, under the textbooks that you teach your students. Uh, every national government has the right to act in its own self-interest. If I were running Greece, I would have redenominated all debts in drachma uh, instead of the euros, devalued by 99%, wiped out all the debts, uh, and had a clean slate. Uh, and then I'd let the uh, currency float again uh, under a new drachma. Uh, Greece could have very simply uh, done all sorts of things. It wasn't able to do it because it's already a member of the euro. Fortunately, many associate countries of the euro, uh, the Baltics, uh, Hungary, Romania, uh, countries that had planned to link their currencies to the euro uh, but are now coming delinked, uh, have the option of basically doing uh, what was done in the 1930s and uh, what uh, President Roosevelt did, denominate all loans and debts in their own currency and uh, do whatever they want with it. Just like uh, Roosevelt uh, negated the gold clause in debt contracts before he devalued the dollar in 1933, uh, the other uh, East European countries and post-Soviet economies, Iceland, uh, can do exactly the same. Well, right. I mean, the the so-called bailout of Greece was, in fact, a bailout of foreign banks. And I was about to ask you what Greece should have done, and I guess you've already answered that question, but you've said that Greece really can't do it because it's a member of the Eurozone. Now, is there any way, once a country becomes a part of the Eurozone, that they can then leave the Eurozone? Nobody's really anticipated that, so they haven't talked about it. But I guess, uh, well, you had the southern states secede in the civil war in this country. Uh, uh, There's a question whether uh, Europe is going to come apart. Uh, A lot of uh, press in Europe is talking about, really, the core of uh, Europe is Germany and France. Uh, and that may reemerge uh, as the core. Uh, nobody really knows what's going to happen. How could the European Union been structured to avoid the rule of private central banks? It, uh, it would have, first of all, permitted central banks to do what they do in America, England, and other places. It would have, uh, it would have had the national treasuries able to monetize uh, the deficit or uh, create the credit uh, by government spending. Uh, It would have made uh, the uh, central bank and the treasury subordinate to uh, the political arm of democratically elected uh, governments. But when you have democracy itself undercut by the financial uh, power of right-wing parties to convince populations to vote against their self-interest, then it's very hard to know uh, how to restructure things. Once the population uh, doesn't understand what's happening economically or financially, uh, it's not able to act in its self-interest, and it's uh, uh, in a position of becoming a victim. Right. Do you think that setting up publicly owned banks could solve a lot of the problems with the predatory banking practices? Uh, that would certainly help. Uh, the uh, whole idea in the 19th century was that banking is a natural monopoly, and as such, uh, it belongs in the public domain, just as uh, broadcasting systems, roads, railroads, transportation, communications, phone systems all belong in the public domain. Once you privatize them, you let the owners of these uh, monopoly privileges set up toll booths. 
uh, toll booths on telephones uh, so that it costs a lot more to make a telephone call than it actually costs to produce uh, the service of the phone call. Uh, there are toll booths to get onto highways. There are toll booths to use credit. Uh, governments can create credit as cheaply as a commercial bank can do, namely right on a computer keyboard. All they have to do is, is credit a deposit and uh, that creates credit. Uh, it's bank loans that create deposits, not the other way around. So uh, the act of lending and credit creation can be done freely, uh, and if there's a charge for it, as in the charge of interest uh, that banks charge, like 29% for credit card companies here, that's simply a toll booth charge. It's an extortionate monopoly charge. And uh, this didn't used to be permitted under the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 and the subsequent American Anti-Monopoly Administration. It wasn't uh, uh, permitted under Europe's uh, anti-monopoly legislation. But all of a sudden, uh, there's been a non-enforcement of all of this century of political reform that led to progressive uh, price regulation, progressive income taxation. All of this has been uh, rolled back since 1980, and we're going rapidly back to the early 19th and even 18th century when the uh, uh, the banking interests and the feudal landowning interests uh, dominated all of Europe and stifled it, which is, of course, why Europe lost out to the United States and uh, uh, other uh, parts of the world. So, well, how could finance capital be subjugated to industrial capital? Could this be done by passing laws? Uh, sure, or by simply enforcing laws that uh, were on the books. Uh, the idea would be that uh, you, you've recently in America had this discussion of the public option for health care as opposed to the private uh, health insurance companies. Uh, what you need is a public option in banking and finance. There's no reason that the government uh, can't uh, operate its own public credit card system, its own public banking in Japan and Russia, the largest banks are the postal savings banks. In the United States, most rural areas used to have postal savings banks, uh, and those are really the only safe banks uh, that there were. And uh, until about the 1950s, these banks were uh, uh, major repositories and could have turned around and done whatever they wanted, just as credit unions could do whatever they want. There's no reason at all that government can't uh, replace uh, private banking. And also that uh, government can't pass a tax system that would collect uh, the unearned uh, rent. There's no need for America's taxes to have been turned regressive so that uh, a blue-collar worker pays a much higher tax rate than a billionaire uh, like Warren Buffett. You have to have fiscal reform go hand-in-hand with financial reform. You can't separate the two. So uh, you need to take a two-pronged approach, both of fiscal and financial policy, uh, and they always have been essentially one. And that's the kind of uh, platform that we're proposing as a test case uh, in Latvia. Well, the problem there, of course, in the United States and other countries is that the, the Congress, the legislature, is controlled by the banks. That's right. They're the largest campaign contributors, and uh, the Obama administration has appointed bank lobbyists as its major uh, advisors. Uh, Larry Summers is basically a lobbyist for the banks and was one of the major lobbyists for getting rid of the uh, Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 under Clinton, 
the Obama administration is being run uh, by people way to the right of uh, even Clinton, way to the right of the Republicans. That's the amazing thing. Even the Republicans before the election were opposing the bailout, uh, and Obama and the Democrats were supporting them. So uh, you have a situation today where uh, the Democratic Party in this country and labor parties and social democratic parties in Europe uh, have lost the whole ideology that was there at their outset. Their outset ideology was to support uh, industry and living standards and consumers. And now they've been taken over by the financial interests and by the, uh, by the vested uh, interests against uh, labor and industry. And uh, nobody really anticipated this, uh, even at the end of World War II. The end of World War II, if you'd told people of all of the increase in productivity that you've had and the technological breakthroughs, they'd think we'd be living a life of leisure right now. And instead, uh, we're having the three-job family. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Europe's financial class war against labor, industry, and government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, right, and you you write that the Social Democrats, and I'm assuming that would include the Democrats here as well, have no real economic program anymore. And you write about how this was a consequence of the Cold War. That's largely it. Uh, In order to uh, fight for socialism, which originally they were founded to fight for, they had to purify socialism from being tarred with Stalinism. And they realized that uh, people uh, were confusing Stalinism in Russia with uh, what was the social democratic reform policy of uh, the Western policies. And uh, until the Cold War was over, the social democrats and the democrats had to take the lead in saying, we're not uh, Stalinist Russia, we're not for uh, a state-planned economy, we're for a mixed economy, uh, of checks and balances where the government does its thing and private uh, enterprise uh, does its thing. And they essentially stopped working on economic proposals and became political. And then they began to uh, focus on inequity and become distributed socialists. And within the socialist movement itself, uh, there was a shift away from productive socialists. Socialists have said, look, we have a more productive economic system that can increase labor productivity, increase living standards. Uh, And the distributed socialists have said, all you need is to redistribute income while leaving the current tax system and the current production system and the current system in place. Well, the current system itself uh, today is something that, if it's left in place, is just going to polarize income and wealth more and more between creditors and debtors. And uh, that's what you're seeing today, the most uh, extreme degree of polarization uh, between creditors and debtors, between rich and poor, uh, that you've ever seen since uh, national statistics uh, begun to be collected, whether it's in the United States or Europe. Well, yes, and you say that the old left collapsed and the new left that took its place was more concerned with social and cultural issues than economic ones. That's right. If you look through uh, the socialist publications, the monthly review, it's about uh, really the people who've been left out of the capitalist economy. It's about uh, racial minorities, ethnic minorities, uh, sexual minorities, uh, third world uh, people, 
nations, uh, exploitation, but there isn't the discussion of economic dynamics uh, that you had a century ago when uh, prior to World War I, uh, the best uh, economic analysis coming out of anywhere was by the Social Democrats. They were the, the people that uh, saw that the system was run uh, basically based on exploitation uh, and was able to trace these things. Uh, you've had uh, very little discussion of economic uh, factors, even by the Marxists. Uh, uh, academic Marxism is very largely a discussion of uh, dialectical materialism, philosophy. Uh, there's uh, Marxist anthropology, uh, uh, Marxist culture, uh, but there's very little Marxist economics. Right, and what you've been describing, the way you've been describing the new left, I think they call a lot of that identity politics now. Right, that's exactly right. And uh, t- uh, in my day, uh, what calls itself the new left before it would just be looked at as uh, bourgeois adventurism, or I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, it was considered uh, a trivia as far as economics uh, was concerned. Well, right. What you lack in the left is a perception that industrial capitalism has turned into something almost antithetical to it, and that's finance capitalism. There was a belief, uh, there was a confusion on the left, uh, promoted largely by the monthly review crowd, that monopoly capitalism was all part of the natural tendency of industrial capitalism to monopolies, and uh, industrial capitalism and financial capitalism was uh, a symbiotic dynamic. And uh, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, if you read Marx uh, himself, which I don't think the Monthly Review people did, uh, you see that Marx was always juxtaposing industrial capital from finance capital, which he called fictitious capital. Uh, I see very little discussion in the American left about fictitious capital. When I go to other countries like China, uh, I find much more discussion of what Marx actually wrote. Uh, and the socialist left in the United States never was uh, particularly Marxist. Uh, that's uh, an irony. Uh, when I grew up, I knew just about every socialist leader in, in the country, uh, almost uh, in the world, if they came to this country. And often if I'd go to their houses as a, uh, maybe a 10-year-old kid, uh, I'd look at the very attractive red uh, three volumes of Capital published by Kerr. And they were always unopened. And I asked uh, even my father, uh, who was one of the leaders of the Trotskyists. Have you ever uh, read uh, these volumes? And he'd laugh and say, no, I actually never read them. So you had all these Kerr volumes that were always turning up at the used bookstores uh, when the old guys would die, uh, all unread. Uh, I used to find them at uh, Strand Bookstore here in New York, and I'd always look at them to see if they'd ever been opened or if there were any marginal notes or anything. They were never read, uh, never marginal notes. And I knew most of the uh, economic book dealers and social book dealers, and I'd ask them if they had that experience, and they laughed and would say, yep, nobody ever actually reads, uh, read it. They'd put it on their shelf because everybody needed uh, 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 the Marx volumes on their shelf, but uh, people didn't read it. Uh, or, and if they did read Marx, they'd read uh, his political uh, writings, uh, Communist Manifesto, and they'd read, uh, if you look in the socialist bibliographies, very much since the 1930s, has all been cultural and uh, uh, especially in the case of the Trotskyists, it's been largely about uh, third world and racial minorities, not uh, not economics uh, at all. 
Yes, that's very interesting there, your experience with uh, Marx's three volumes. I keep reading and hearing people talk about capitalism and what is going on now. As you have mentioned, as inevitable, this was uh, uh, predicted by Marx many years ago. Well, Marx's idea was that capitalism itself was revolutionary, and that's what made him revolutionary. What made Marx revolutionary was his explanation that capitalism was revolutionary and transforming itself. And uh, he uh, thought that it was going to transform itself into socialism. Uh, And in fact, that banks would uh, become industrialized and would become the main planning agents for an economy that was evolving into socialism. Uh, In a few passages, he made fun of the very thought that banks could do uh, what they've done uh, under Mr. Obama and uh, turn into uh, something autonomous and independent from capitalism. And uh, Marx referred to usury capital and uh, fictitious capital uh, and described it as something that was almost uh, uh, impossible to expect. Now, uh, in China, they've just begun to publish uh, the World Review of Political Economy. The first issue just came out. It's uh, distributed by Pluto Press. And it's published by the the School of Marxist Studies at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And I have a long article in that describing the financialization of uh, uh, real estate and industry. And in the forthcoming uh, Critique uh, magazine, which is a uh, uh, Marxist publication in Britain, I have a long discussion of uh, Marx's uh, description of the evolution of uh, industrial capitalism into uh, finance capitalism, the financialization of industry, basically. So I have all the quotations there, and they can get more quotations in uh, the articles that I've written on my website, uh, where I show how the whole uh, political fight of the 19th century uh, towards progressive uh, reform has been inverted into uh, the exact opposite of what it was uh, back then. Can you talk uh, generally about the state of the Latvian economy, and is Latvia being held up as a model for other countries of Europe? Uh, The European uh, governments have told Greece, why can't you be like the Latvians? Why are you fighting back? Uh, The Swedish banks call Latvia the uh, domino that can bring all the rest of uh, the uh, indebted countries down. Uh, Latvia is on the Baltic, uh, right between Estonia and uh, Lithuania. Uh, Its uh, GDP has fallen by over 20% uh, in the last uh, year and a half. Uh, I'm chief of a committee of experts for the Renew Task Force Latvia. If you Google Michael Hudson in Latvia, you'll see it. And uh, they just had the meeting of the Concord Center Party, and they published our proposed reforms in the uh, uh, Latvia Renewed. Uh, It's on a website, uh, RTFL, Reform Tax Force Latvia. Here's the situation. Uh, Real estate prices there have fallen by about 70% worse than anywhere else in Europe. In Europe, uh, and in uh, Latvia, even in England, if uh, you take out a mortgage and the price of your property falls below the mortgage, you can't just walk away like you do in the United States. You're personally liable for the difference. So uh, one example that was in the newspaper Diana in Riga when I was there, uh, a woman borrowed 40,000, took out a mortgage for 40,000 lots, uh, that's about $80,000. It's almost $2 per lot. Uh, 
to buy uh, an apartment. She was a public employee. The government uh, cut back employment uh, as part of its campaign to lower public sector wages by 30%. So she lost her job. Uh, she couldn't pay the mortgage, and the bank foreclosed and sold her apartment for only 7,500 euros. That's from 40,000 euros to 7,500 euros. And that's about uh, $55,000 a loss that she had to make up. Uh, having lost her home, uh, the bank now says, well, now you have to spend the rest of your life paying off the $55,000 debt to make the Swedish banks whole. Uh, most of their debts are owed to Swedish banks. Now, a few years ago, uh, obviously the bank had overlent for the apartment. It had uh, lent her too much money without a warning about uh, what was going to happen. Well, a few years ago, the bank uh, examiners of Latvia said, our job as bank examiners is to keep the bank solvent. So they went to the banks and said, look, uh, you don't have to back your loans by the value of the property anymore. Back them by the income of the person that is taking out the loan. And uh, uh, make sure that you not only have the individual homeowner uh, liable, make sure that their sons and their daughters, their fathers, their mothers, their aunts, their uncles, their nieces, and their nephews all countersign. Get as many to countersign as you can so that when you foreclose, you can uh, just wreck a whole family. You can grab all the property and sell off not only of the debtor, but the entire family. Uh, and that's what's happening, that uh, now there are many cosigners of the loans. Most Latvians got family members to cosign for the loans, and now the family members are saying, well, I'm sorry, uh, your cosigner uh, couldn't uh, pay the loan. Uh, we sold uh, the property at a distress price. Now we're going to grab your property and sell it. And now we're going to attach your salary. And now you're going to have to, you know, work for starvation wages. Well, the result is, since most of the Latvians who took out loans were well-to-do, you're having Latvian businessmen and their entire families move out of the country emigrate just to avoid a life of debt peonage. And so you're having a depopulation. The marriage rate in the last two years has fallen way down. The fertility rate, the rate at which they have children, is falling way down. They can't afford to get married. They can't afford to have children. The young people are leaving the country because there are no jobs. Uh, this is the situation that occurs when you have a class war of finance against the rest of the economy. And it's not a, a class war of industry against uh, uh, labor, uh, because industry can't uh, really uh, uh, survive under conditions where you have a tax system where there's a over 50% tax on employment. There's a flat tax there of over 50%. Uh, property is taxed at 0.1%. So Latvia has the highest tax on employment in the world, the lowest tax on property in the world, and the result is economic collapse. And that is what is being held out as the model for Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, they're all saying, why can't you be like Latvians? Why can't you starve in the street quietly and just emigrate and leave? And uh, this is a crazy situation. So uh, we've come out with our proposal saying, look, uh, this insistence that European countries either devalue 
or they slash government spending and impose an austerity program is a false choice. You can cut the cost of labor in half, indeed, uh, not by reducing wages, but by stopping taxing wages and uh, shift the tax onto the land. In other words, onto the property that uh, has been pledged to the banks and the property that, uh, quite frankly, a lot of kleptocrats uh, have taken over throughout the post-Soviet economies. So this October, uh, the election is going to be fought over this issue of uh, who are you going to tax, wealth or labor? Are you going to rebuild uh, Latvia and the Baltics and the other post-Soviet economies, or are you going to finish the Cold War by just uh, stripping them, wrecking them, and causing the largest uh, demographic crisis since uh, World War II? That's what the election will be about. And when is the election? October 2nd. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Europe's financial class war against labor, industry, and government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, isn't this the same sort of thing that's happening in Greece? I mean, in terms of, of, of the economy. Latvia has an option that Greece doesn't have. Latvia has its own currency, the LAT. Now, it stabilized a lot uh, vis-a-vis the euro very closely, but it has the option of redenominating the debts in its own currency if it wants and uh, devaluing them uh, if it wants. And there's a, another fact, and that's also uh, when the neoliberals designed the Latvian economy, uh, one good thing they did was put in the best uh, consumer protection act uh, that I've seen anywhere in the world. It certainly is uh, as good as anywhere else. And the act says that if a bank makes a loan without disclosing the risk uh, to the borrowers, and that would include the co-signers, the loan is nullified. So uh, we're asking the uh, government to bring a class action suit on the behalf of the uh, mortgage owners and the co-signers to say, look, any bank that did not explain the risks of devaluing the euro, the risks of losing the job, the risks of the co-signers having a lifetime of debt peonage in front of them, uh, has their loan annulled. Uh, well, you can imagine what this is going to do for the general election. People finally see that it doesn't have to be this way. They don't have to be impoverished. They don't have to be driven out of the country. Uh, Latvia is a sovereign nation, and a sovereign nation can do whatever it wants. And uh, that's the choice that countries really have. Are they going to run the financial system for the economy, or are they going to run the economy for the banks, which in Latvia's case are the foreign banks, mainly Swedish banks? Well, it doesn't sound to me like Latvia is considering uh, trying to join the Eurozone. Uh, the neoliberal government has uh, pledged to, but now the question is, uh, well, here's the problem. Latvia and other post-communist countries looked at Europe as protecting them from Russia. Remember, they were all in the Soviet Union uh, prior to 1991, and uh, they felt themselves exploited. Uh, in the 1950s, Stalin uh, came into most of these countries and either deported or arrested most of the middle class, which is the professional class, so they were left without a professional class, uh, except for the Russian administrators that came in. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Russian feeling 
uh, in these countries. And they thought that, well, if we go with Europe, Europe is going to help us get higher living standards. And uh, we want democracy. We don't want Stalinism. Well, what they got, of course, is a travesty of democracy and a travesty of higher living standards. Uh, Europe has treated the Baltics and other countries as, uh, basically as colonies, uh, as export markets for their agricultural surpluses, uh, for their manufactured goods, and especially as banking markets. So rather than helping uh, the Baltics and post-Soviet economies set up their own banks, uh, you had the European banks come in. Uh, the Swedish banks went into Latvia and uh, Estonia and Lithuania. The uh, Austrian banks uh, went into the old Habsburg Empire, Hungary, Romania, uh, Bulgaria. And so you have these uh, post-Soviet economies essentially being reduced to the status of a third world colony of Europe. And now all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, this isn't what we wanted. We wanted our living standards to go up. Instead, they're going down. Uh, we didn't want to have to emigrate to Europe. We wanted to join Europe, but be in our own country. And now if we want work, we have to leave the country, learn a foreign language, and uh, go live in a European country. And the European economy is also shrinking. So uh, uh, you're having people leave for South America, for Asia, uh, for North America, uh, and the Baltics. You're having the kind of uh, flight of people out of the uh, Baltics that uh, you had uh, in the 18th century from England and Europe, people fleeing debt peonage and debt slavery uh, in Europe would all come to America. America was populated by people who fled uh, this kind of economic threat uh, in the old world, and now you have, uh, you have it repeated. The old world people are again fleeing out of Europe in order to get jobs and fleeing against having to spend the rest of their lives uh, paying the banks for their bank loans that have gone bad. But what would you say for people in Europe who who do have the euro? We keep hearing that the Greek debt meltdown is going global, or at least going European. Can you describe why the situation in Greece has a contagious effect, or is it emblematic of a much wider extent of a serious economic crisis? Well, first of all, there's no debt meltdown. When people say debt meltdown, they're trying to uh, whoop up people to believe that there's a crisis. Uh, nothing is very different this year from what it was last year and the year before and the year before that when there was no crisis at all. The crisis is in offenses by uh, the vested interests, by the wealthy interests, to shift the taxes off themselves onto labor and to say, wait a minute, now is the time to really drive the nail into the coffin of the class war. Now we're going to mount an offensive to get rid of Social Security, to get rid of the welfare state. We're going to get rid of public health, get rid of Social Security, get rid of uh, medical care, get rid of uh, uh, public spending, and uh, run the government so that uh, they tax labor and industry and agriculture basically to bail the banks out of uh, the bad loans that are extracting so much interest that they're shrinking the economy. So the financial interests in Europe are willing to see the economy shrink, willing to see the economy deindustrialized, to force the governments to say, 
if you pay your pensions and Social Security, you have to sell off your public enterprises. You have to sell off any land or mineral resources or anything else in the public domain to the bankers. You have to sell your roads for us to buy to turn into toll roads. You have to sell everything you have, and we'll privatize it. And what this is is a return to feudalism. Uh, It used to be that uh, nations would have to militarily conquer a country in order to grab the land and uh, impose taxes and tribute on them. And now this is done not militarily anymore. This is done financially. And uh, the financial aggression has replaced the military aggression, but the effect is just as uh, devastating. It's uh, just as devastating for the population uh, in terms of reducing the population, of uh, driving the youth out of the country, of depriving the country of the uh, uh, people between 20 and 35 years old of working age. Uh, The effect is exactly like a military war, but it's done financially. And uh, the solution is for these countries to realize that there is Uh, a new war that's taking place. People don't even realize that it's a financial war because somehow they believe that they can get richer by going into debt as long as they're going into debt to buy property that they think will rise in value. And, of course, they were just tricked. Uh, The property's plunged in value, and now they have to make up the difference by spending the rest of their life paying off the negative equity uh, that the banks should be stuck with. So uh, the solution would be to do what governments were told to do a century ago, nationalize the banking system, uh, just as uh, you'd have uh, a public broadcasting system and a phone system, the uh, financial system should be in in the public sector. I can guarantee you that if uh, the public sector took over uh, the credit card system, or even if they applied the anti-monopoly pricing laws and price regulation that you have applied in America to your gas and electric bills, uh, you'd have uh, interest rates rolled back to about 8 or 9%, nothing like the usurious rates. Uh, you'd have bad loans uh, wiped off the books if they're predatory and if they're crooked. Essentially, financial crime has been decriminalized and uh, treated as part of the free market. So it's as if they're identifying the free market with a free reign for criminals. Uh, none of this would have occurred a century ago. Countries would have been up in arms. And the question is how you uh, create the same class consciousness today that you had a century ago. Well, you have said and written that uh, the idea in historical social reform was to have government enterprises operate natural monopolies so that there would be some kind of competition to keep private production in line. That was the theory. Right. And then the post office would be an example of this. But now what's happening to the post office? The uh, right-wingers have made sure that the post office is run as inefficiently as possible. Uh, If you put deregulators in charge of government, they're going to make sure that they make uh, government a travesty of what it's supposed to be. Governments used to be looked at as efficient, but if you have a George Bush or an Obama running the government, of course it's going to be inefficient. Well, right. You know, when I go into the post office... The guy behind the counter tells me that the post office is losing billions of dollars. Uh, It's supposed to lose billions of dollars. You know, the first business school in America was the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The first uh, economics professor there was Simon Patton. 
And uh, Patton wrote that the uh, role of public enterprise was like a fourth factor of production alongside labor, land, and capital. But whereas labor earned wages and uh, land uh, produced land rent and capital earned uh, profits, uh, the objective of public enterprise wasn't to make an economic return. It was to lower the overall cost of doing business. And so the idea that America got rich on throughout the whole 20th century, what enabled it to outclass all the other nations in the world was that it said, okay, we're going to have progressive taxation, we're going to tax wealth and property, uh, especially monopolies and real estate wealth, and we're going to use that money to subsidize public investment in roads, transport, uh, and infrastructure. And by providing infrastructure, uh, ever since the Erie Canal and the Cumberland Road, uh, we're going to lower the cost of doing business so that American industry and agriculture can undersell that of every other country. And we can undersell every other country by raising American wage rates. Now, uh, I recently republished a book that I wrote on this, uh, America's Protectionist Takeoff. And you can uh, buy the book from Amazon.com, uh, along with uh, my book on the economic theory of this, Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt. And uh, this book traces the development, really, of, uh, basically by Republicans in the 19th century after the Civil War and before, showing how America can become an industrial powerhouse and how high-wage labor can undersell uh, pauper labor because high-wage labor is more productive labor. The whole idea of reducing wage rates and squeezing labor is making labor actually less productive, not more productive, and that's why uh, America has lost its position as industrial leader of the world, and it didn't have to be that way. It's lost it because it followed this right-wing Chicago school monetarist travesty of free enterprise. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been Europe's Financial Class War Against Labor, Industry, and Government. Michael Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, and America's Protectionist Takeoff. Dr. Hudson has contributed an article, From Marx to Goldman Sachs, The Fictions of Fictitious Capital and the Financialization of Industry, to a special book issue of the Marxist journal Critique Magazine for its August 2010 issue, Volume 38, Number 3, published by Routledge. That's R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. He has also contributed to The World Review of Political Economy from the Chinese Academy of Sciences School of Marxist Studies, published by Pluto Journals, London, available at www.wrpe.org. That's www.wrpe.org. Visit Dr. Hudson's website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. 
Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. These are some serious times that we live in, Jeep. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself 